This is Ace Atkins, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Allison Galen. Hey, this is Brian Panowitz. I'm Don Winslow. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Hi, this is Sophie Hanna, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon and Steve. You know, we keep getting the cream of the crop on our guest lists. I don't know about you, but I've, I never got invited to cool parties like this when I was a kid. Really? <laughs> you act surprised. You've met me, right? Well, yeah, I just, guilt by association kind of thing, I figured you could have drafted on kind of hanging out with me, you know? I... <laughs> I didn't know you when I was a kid. Oh, I wish I did. You know what, Eric? I didn't really know me when I was a kid either. <laughs> well, who's with us today on the show? Today we talked to Wendy Corsi Staub, and she explains what she did with her payment for appearing on our show. It was a $15 check, which I cast for beer money. And Jake Hinkson tells us the surefire way to tell if you're a writer. I think maybe my childhood scarred me in certain ways. Plus, Matthew Mather scares us about the future of medical technology. Nobody actually notices this, but on your organ donation card, it never specifies which organ, which leaves it open to the possibility of actually donating an entire body if this situation did arise. All that is brought to you by our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. They have a tremendous list of crime and mystery titles like My Detective by Jeffrey Fleischman and Rewind by Catherine Ryan Howard. You can find out more at blackstonepublishing.com. So, Steve, uh, you read anything good lately? I actually went back and read a book that kind of blew my mind when I was in my early to mid-teens. It's called The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt. Have you read that? I have. I never even heard of this book. This was some of the outsider fiction that I got into in my early to mid-teens. Um, this was actually a book that I found at a Goodwill um, and I picked up, I think, based on the back cover copy. Oh, those um, are the best. <laughs> yeah, but it, it ended up over the course of the last 40 years, because it was written in the early 70s, being this sort of cult classic. It's it's about a psychologist that uh, turns his life over to random chance by rolling dice and then following through on whatever the dice dictate. Wow. I had read an article recently about these kinds of cult books, and it listed this, so I decided to go back and read it. And wow, it is dark and it is edgy. I mean, the guy is doing some terrible, terrible things in justifying it um, by rolling these dice. I mean, we're talking about rape. We're talking about murder. Jeez. Oh, um, yeah. And, and really ends up starting basically a religion of dice people in this book. So, you know, I, I don't think I connected with it the way that I did as an angry teenager, um, but it was definitely interesting to go back and re-explore it after all this time. Um, not for the faint of heart, but I still do recommend it. How about you, Eric? Well, uh, now that you mention it, I actually went back and read something that uh, I had not read before. But I've been trying to sort of go through my bookshelves, which I have very limited space in looking at books that have been sitting there for years that I have not read yet. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I got to either read this or send it to the garage or something because I need the space. So uh, I grabbed one of the Elmore Leonard books that I had not read yet called City Primeval. And I was another thrift store find, just like you were talking about. I think I, I grabbed it because I was like, oh, I've, I've actually never even heard of this Elmore Leonard book. It was one of his very early books. I think it was published in 81 or 82 or something like that. 
not one of the titles of his that people talk about or, or never got a movie adaptation or anything like that. I ended up absolutely loving it. It turned into one of my favorite Elmore Leonard books that I, I'd ever read. One of those great little gem of a find that it was sitting on my bookshelf the whole time. Who knew? Yeah, I, I really love stumbling on a book that blows your mind. I don't really allow myself the room for that often enough these days. I got to I gotta reread more stuff. I, I keep saying, oh, I should reread that book. And oh, I, I loved that book. I really have to get back into that. I, I'm not a rereader. I got to uh, maybe when I'm old and retired. Well, I mean, there are so many books that we haven't read. I, yeah, that's the problem. So everyone just take a year off. <laughs> that is great advice. Just roll the dice and decide what you're going to do for a year. <laughs> well, Steve, our first guest is the incredibly prolific Wendy Corsi Staub. Her latest psychological thriller is Dead Silence, but she has, oh, so many more books to keep you up at night. Uh, somehow we managed to pry her away from her keyboard long enough to talk with us. So if her next book is late to her editor, it's probably our fault. All right. Well, Wendy, with more than 90 novels, we won't even begin to try to name them all. Uh, and many of these are not under your own name. You have a, a couple of different personas that you write in. We want to know, is there any different freedoms that you get in writing under a pen name? Yeah, you know, well, there used to be. And I'm mainly talking about Wendy Markham here because that's my light side. <laughs> that was the pseudonym that I came up with when I started writing like Chicklet and women's fiction. Um, there was anonymity in the beginning, a sense of that, because I wasn't sure that the genres were going to be you know, viable. Like Chicklet, that was the dawn of Chicklet. So I didn't really want to put my own name on it. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> my husband's name is Mark. I put Mark, Wendy Markham. But of course, <laughs> once they became successful, to me, I was kind of like, oh, now librarians don't know that I'm also Wendy Markham, you know? <laughs> so it was a double-edged part. So you tried you try to pin it on your husband and drag him down with you, but now he gets to take all the credit. Exactly. <laughs> I'm totally being honest here, as you can see. <laughs> you know, you look at that number of novels, 90. I mean, it is such a big number. But then when you dig into your past, it, it seems pretty apparent that you always wanted to be a writer. Is it true that you got your start writing poetry for Seventeen Magazine? <laughs> yeah, if you can call that a start, it was a $15 check, which I cashed for beer money because I was in college at the time. <laughs> and it should have been a great harbinger for, you know, publishing paychecks, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, that's that was my first national publication. And it was fuel for me to, you know, I moved to New York right after that. I got out of college, went to New York and tried to launch a publishing career. And I kind of didn't know any better than, than being really, <laughs> uh, you know, brazen and sort of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to succeed. So now knowing what I know and being a parent to 20 somethings, I kind of shudder when I think about that. But yeah, that's where it all began. Okay. But then let's fast forward. So many years later, would you say that writing books is easier for you now than it used to be? God, no, no. I think it's harder. You know, in, I mean, craft is easier, but then 
after 90 books, you know that you reach for certain phrases or even certain secondary character names and you have to try to stay fresh. But the stakes are higher because my readers are smart. They've stayed with me for you know, many, many books. And I have to try to stay one step ahead of them. And that's always harder. You've written a number of trilogies. You, you definitely seem to like them. What, what feels right to you about a three book arc? Well, you're creating a world and you get to live in that world along with your readers. You have to bring them in and build that. And it did feel right for a long time. Now I'm finding that with suspense, it's challenging to sustain suspense over three books. Because if you're writing about ordinary people, it's kind of hard to suspend disbelief. You know, you have to think, oh, how is this this mom going to trip across dead bodies for three books, right? And make right. that <laughs> make that believable. So I've come up with ways so far. Um, but I think that I'm feeling the constrictions now because I've ex- exhausted a lot of, of um, ways to do that and keep it fresh and believable. So I think that my next, I'm finishing a trilogy now, and I think that I've already talked with my publisher or my editor, my agent. I think we're going to do a, a single title next time. So you're going to go lower, not higher. You're not like, you know what? I just need to live with with a detective who makes sense for 20 books to trip yeah, over dead bodies. Yeah. You, you'd rather go standalone. <laughs> I'd rather go standalone right now just because it's a break from, from I think I've done five or maybe six trilogies in a row. Um, and I think that it's time. I just need to not have to constantly be flipping back three books to see, you know, what color were that character's eyes? You know, that kind of thing gets old after, after 10, 20 years or whatever, whatever it's been. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with your trilogies, you tend to give them titles that are of a set, like the Mundy's Landing books, like Blood Red, Blue Moon, Bone White. So be honest. Does it take longer to come up with matching titles than it does to write the books? In some cases, yes. And actually, I have to give a shout out to Heather Graham, Heather Graham Possessory. She came up with Bone White. I was on a panel with her and I said, well, I've got Blood Red. I've got Blue Moon. I need something with white. And it's about an old skull. And she's like, uh, hello, duh. Like, oh <laughs> so I always give her that shout out because I was stuck for a while on that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, we have with with the current trilogy. I came up with Little Girl Lost, which I loved. And then the second book was supposed to be Little Boy Blue. And Sale shot that down at the very last moment. And I still am frustrated by that because, you know, I really wanted it to sort of flow in that way. So that was the break in the matching titles. And the next one's called The Butcher's Daughter. And they have promised me I can keep my title. But they this time it's not a match set. This time they don't they don't match that way. And I always defer to sales because I feel like they know they know how to sell books. I know how to write books. That's their job. This is my job. With so many books, we have to assume that you write 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So are we interrupting a new trilogy right now by talking to you? Well, the dishwasher leak this morning interrupted the new trilogy first. But yeah, like Sundays, yeah, I am I am pretty much seven days a week, um, all day, every day until a book is done. That works for me. I do these kind of marathons. I, I like to immerse myself, and especially with a trilogy, because then you get to live in that world, and it's fresher. So what is relaxed Wendy like? Um, she, she doesn't. You can ask my husband about that. 
collapse Wendy at the end of the day. No, relax. I, I do love, you know, um, I was at the beach last week. When, <laughs> last Sunday, I took a day. Um, I love the beach. I love to swim. I swim laps every morning for my awful back. Um, so I swim and I read books underwater. I have a, a water fi that does that for me. So that's, that's my downtime. That's my pleasure time. And I'm a TV addict at night. <laughs> you know, I, we eat dinner in front of the TV about 8.30 and we, we oh. have a DVR full of stuff that I love to watch. My guilty pleasure. Well, now you've written for young adults as well. Do you know, have you had any young readers who get older and then follow you into reading your suspense novel? God, yes. Yes, I do. And I'm always conscious of that now that I know that. Um, I started out as a young adult writer and when that market dried up, I ended up you know, my editor said, why don't you try your hand at writing for adults? And then after that first one, I found out that a lot of my young adult readers had followed me. And that novel was much more graphic than what I write now. So I kind of thought that's what you had to do for suspense. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was mortified. You know, my grandmother was reading, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I'm not quite as graphic. <laughs> and I love it when they come with their kids. Like they, you know, like I said, uh, my first book came out in 93. So those first readers have kids of their own that are reading now and they'll show up at signing. Love it. Is there any genre that you wouldn't write? Uh, yeah, sci-fi. I, I never read. I don't. And fantasy, you know, that's just not my thing. So I would never try my hand at that because you really need to know what you're doing. And if you're not reading it and it's not your cup of tea, then, then yeah, you shouldn't be writing it. So that's about the only thing that I can think of that I just am not familiar with. <laughs> I've done it all, believe me, <laughs> early on. A lot of ghostwriting, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now you have, yeah, you, you've ghostwritten for a couple of celebrities. And uh, now I've, I will say you've written with Fabio. <laughs> yeah. I've met Fabio. Yeah. I have I, I'm here to say he's, he's, <laughs> He he's a charming and a lovely gentleman, and, and I don't even have a question. I just want to get that out there he, he, for anyone who's curious. He's a really yeah, nice guy. Great, yeah, he's a really nice guy. And and I wrote with Ed Koch, um, New York City mayor. Like he was the mayor when I moved here, flat broke out of college. I wrote with him. He was a really nice guy. You know, I've I've worked with a bunch of great people, um, and a lot of them I'm not allowed to talk about, but that's okay. <laughs> It's in the vault. But yeah, it was a fascinating way to sort of build my reputation with editors and, you know, buy a house in the New York City. <laughs> my kids used to say one time, my, my youngest son said, yeah, mommy, didn't Fabio buy our house? <laughs> I said, no. He heard my husband and I saying, yeah, if we do this, we might be able to, <laughs> to get a mortgage. I like I like that Eric has just been waiting forty one episodes Fabio. to work in that he's met Fabio. <laughs> you guys hang out together. It's the first time it's come up organically. I gotta say, <laughs> are you pals? Do you do the gym together? <laughs> Wendy, you're, you're saying that it, like if Steve and I get stuck in, in any of the books that we're currently writing, we can call you up and you can step in in a in a go, in a ghostwriting fashion, and you don't even need credit. <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> no, because yeah, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Wendy, enough chit chat. You got 16 hours of writing to do. <laughs> All 
You know, it's talking to authors like that, Eric, that remind me that perhaps I'm not cut out for this writing game because I don't, I don't have 90 books in me. <laughs> it's that mixture of this is supposed to be inspiring, but it's actually quite deflating, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Well, Wendy, good for you for shaming the rest of us. <laughs> well done. <laughs> You know, Steve, you missed the last Men of Mystery conference because you were down with a horrible illness. I think it was some sort of bubonic plague or something to hear you describe it. I mean, that wasn't the actual diagnosis, but I'm certain that I told my wife that's what I had as I was looking for sympathy. So, so we're the same when we get sick. We, we just, we're not kind to our wives in that situation. You just sort of lay around like a lump and wait to be waited on hand and foot. Uh, I don't know about laying around like a lump. I'm more like a very vocal three-year-old. <laughs> well, you missed another good one, but luckily I was there. And, you know, I managed to corner several authors for our Unpanel segment this time. And since we were at something called Men of Mystery, I wanted to get to some mysterious things about them. Hi, my name's Howard Michael Gould. Now, uh, Howard, here we are at the Men of Mystery Conference, uh, and we want to know, what's the most mysterious thing that we should know about you? He's stumped. I'm stumped. There's, I'm, there's nothing mysterious about me. I'm an open book now. Is that, has it been that way your whole life, or is this just... No, uh, no I, was, I was a cyber hermit until they made me go online and, and expose my soul. So is coming to something like this as a, as a writer, as someone who's usually alone in a room typing on a keyboard, is this out of the ordinary for you to get out and mingle with the folks? This is out of the ordinary and so much more painful than I make it look. There you go. You're faking it well, I couldn't tell. <laughs> That's the mysterious thing about me. We found it after all. You, you, you've gotten to the secret. Jack Carr, two novels out, The Terminal List and True Believer. And uh, I spent the last 20 years in the SEAL teams and then transitioned out to uh, follow my passion into the world of writing and publishing. So standing right here now, the two of us, you could kill me with just your thumb if you wanted to, right? I'm retired. Past life. <laughs> it sounds like you have uh, maybe a mysterious past. What's the mysterious thing we should know about you? I don't think it's so mysterious or not. I think the mysterious part is that people assume that it is mysterious because you were in the SEAL teams and there's been a lot of movies and books that uh, kind of you know highlight that background as being semi-secretive or whatever else. But in all actuality, what we're doing downrange is doing what every major city SWAT team has been doing since the mid-60s, which is building a pattern of life on bad guys, kicking in their door in the middle of the night, grabbing them out to get intelligence, and then doing it again. So uh, that's there's taking the mystery out of it for you. But I don't know. I, I feel like I'm less impressed now. <laughs> I know. That's the danger, right? I'll show you what's behind the curtain. Until you come kicking in my door, and then I'll that's be, right. I'll be yeah. impressed all over. Yeah, exactly. Then you don't want to be on that side of it. <laughs> hey, look, it's Brett Battles. So, uh, Brett, what's the most mysterious thing about you? That is a tough... Unfortunately, I can't tell you because it's a mystery. No, that's a terrible answer. No, that's that, that's legit. I believe it because there was something behind your eyes that made me think if I push, something's going to go wrong. Well, it's so mis mysterious that I, I'm not sure I even know what it is. <laughs> so, In your Jonathan Quinn books, you, you've now expanded this world with the Nightman, with the XCOMs. You, you're, you're officially a world builder. I love world building. I mean, my other passion is science fiction and, and that stuff, and that's a ton of world building in that. But, yeah, I... I, I kind of liked uh, uh, the world building of the of the Quinn stuff. I I even hooked in my earlier um, 
Logan Harper books because there's a character from that who's now in the Quinn books, or a couple characters actually. So uh, I've kind of created this whole like interconnected world between all of my thriller spy spy thriller type books. So it's a lot of fun to do that. So if we walk into your house, is it just note cards on the walls and strings between them, like a serial killer trying to keep it all straight? That's a mystery. I can't tell you about that. <laughs> we found a mystery after all. <laughs> we found a mystery. <laughs> I'm Neil Griffin. I'm a retired police officer. Three years ago, about the last five years, I've been writing crime fiction, mostly concentrating on what they, um, my editor, or at least my publisher, calls Midwestern Noir, small-town Wisconsin stuff. But I have a book coming out in May that'll be my first uh, Southern California novel. I'm really looking forward to it. Tell us, what's the most mysterious thing about you that we should oh, know? Wow. There's not much. You know, I don't know that there's any mystery left. I mean, 30 years in public service. My wife's an elected official. I don't know if I have any real mystery left, so I'd have to think about that one. You got me. Transparency seems uh, yeah. it's, it's a part of your life. Yeah, it? pretty much. Yeah, it's an open book. <laughs> is, is there anything that uh, you experienced on the job that's just too personal that you would never include even for inspiration? You know, I don't, I, I, it's funny you should say that because just this week, not to, uh, my wife gets so mad at me as I talk about other people's work, but I just saw this amazing series uh, called Unbelievable. Yeah. Terrific stuff. But what really struck me is the professionalism of the women detectives in that series. And I've written my own woman detective character. And I just, uh, those two were just so impressive to me. And it really struck me as true to life. It was marvelous. It really was. High recommendation. Unbelievable on Netflix. Excellent. Yeah, terrific. I'm Fief Sutton. What else should I say? <laughs> That's uh, it. That's all people okay. need to know. Okay, isn't okay. It? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I know. Well, I, what I want to know is uh, what's the most mysterious thing about you that we should know? The most mysterious thing about me is that I don't know what I'm doing at any time. I'm trying to figure this out, and I haven't gotten any closer to the answer from the beginning. Well, that seems surprising. <laughs> I, I, you were saying this morning you're, you're closing in on, what is it, a dozen of the Hallmark uh, murder mysteries? Well, I'm, uh, seven of them. I'm writing the seventh one. Yes, yes, yes. And boy, that's really, I'm really lost with those. <laughs> And I've written five books and lots of movies and television shows. And every time I sit in front of the computer, I wonder, what the hell? How can I do this? How how does it work? I don't know. I don't know. I... So you deal with uh, with murder and, and, yeah, and, yeah, and in your yeah, daily yeah, writing, yeah, but yeah. it sounds like an even more terrifying thing is the blank page. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! I mean, I, literally every time I start writing something I just think I don't know how to do this I don't know how it works it's it's terrifying at least at least murder it allows you something to hang on to you know at least you know well okay there's going to be somebody murdered at the end of the first act at least you have that to hold on to murder yeah oh we found the upside of murder that's yeah yeah definitely 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 if I was writing like a slice of life coming of age story I don't know how to do that because nobody gets murdered you know all right, I'm here with Patty Hirsch. Patty, congratulations on Hudson's Kill, the second in your Justice Flanagan novels, Fresh Out. That's very kind of you. Yes, thanks very much. Comes out on Tuesday of next week. I'm very excited about it. Well, I'm excited because I really enjoyed Devil's Half Mile. Uh, now, here we are at Men of Mystery. So let us know, what is the most mysterious thing about you? Well, it's probably the fact that I like to cook. Yeah, a lot of people look at me and say, wow, you have this 
military background and now you're this journalist and you're interested in finance and economics and writing and you like to cook. And to me, cooking is a great thing because I like to bake actually. And baking is great because baking is a very specific formula. It's almost scientific. There's none of this, put a little bit of this, put a little bit of that in. You've got to be really, really specific about what you do, and then you get a great product. So I love like the scientific aspect of it, and I love doing a lot of the research uh, when I do this cooking, and that kind of plays into the writing that I do as well. So maybe is that a mis- that's mysterious? I, it was unexpected. <laughs> so if if I'm coming over to your house, do you have a specialty that you're going to pull out? You know, I'm really into cherry pie right now, oh. but um, what I'm really specialising in right now is rhubarb pie. Aha! So if you like a little rhubarb, pop rinds and have a slice of pie. Makes me think of my grandmother. Oh, that's very heartwarming. I, make, I, I serve mine with custard as opposed to ice, ice cream. is very big here in the U.S. I like to serve mine with a nice thick egg custard that I make myself. All right. Well, from now on, whenever I read your books, I will think of my grandmother, which is a strange thing to say, but uh, you, you did it to yourself, Patty. Right, I can't tell you. This makes me feel really warm inside. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, should I even ask what the most mysterious thing is about you? I'm a pretty open book, Eric. You are. That's the one thing I like about you. You don't. You don't. I, I feel like we don't have many secrets between us, but I could be wrong. At this point, Eric, I've forgotten so much of what I've done in my life that it would be. Uh, it would be a mystery to me as well. <laughs> well, it's no mystery, Steve, that there are a select few writers that I eagerly await their next title, and I've loved everything they've ever written. And one of those writers is Jake Hinkson. Uh, Jake has a new book out called Dry County, and it continues his hot streak of writing some of the best noir novels being written today. Well, we talked to him from his home in Chicago. And, you know, Steve, if you listen close, you can even hear his cat getting in on the interview because there's nothing more noir than a cat, right? I think that's cozies you're thinking of, Eric. Yeah, no, well, cats are cozy. I will give you that. But they will also straight up murder you. Multiple times. (laughs) All right. Well, Jake Hinkson, thank you for joining us. And congratulations on your new novel, Dry County. Thank you. Well, you know, I got an early look at this. And uh, like all your books, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Steve, you're going to have to check me here so I don't fanboy out too much because Jake is by far away one of my favorite writers. I love it when you fanboy. Go for it. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm all for it, too. Well, Jake, you've lived in Chicago for a number of years now, but you still write mostly about small town Arkansas. How long before the big city starts to creep into your novels? I don't know. I mean, it, it may happen at some point. So far, really. When I, whenever I sort of you know put pen to paper, I'm just called back to Arkansas. I'm not sure exactly why I can't seem to break free of it so far but i mean i have a couple of ideas that would take me out of arkansas i guess it'd be i mean born and raised and lived there for the vast majority of your life right it's got to have an impact yeah for sure you know i mean it was the first 25 26 years what's interesting is that um we're getting we're getting close to the point where i've spent about half my life outside of arkansas but i think maybe my childhood scarred me in certain ways that I'm still sort of working <laughs> through. So, Well, I mean, l- let's be honest. I mean, Chicago's not really a noir town. I mean, what would you write about? I know. I mean, there's nothing here, you know? I mean, there's nothing to talk about. So. 
You know what's well, funny is here's what here's what's funny. Last night someone broke into my apartment. What? Literally How's that last, funny? Literally <laughs> hilarious. Literally last night I was at a show and I came home and someone had got into my apartment. They didn't really take much, but I'm living the world. I don't have to write about it here. <laughs> it's, it's more performance art at this point. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Now, were you out at a like a black and white silent movie, like a typical Jake Hinkson uh, Saturday night? Um, no. Although that's a good uh, that's a good guess. No, I was actually at uh, a comedy show at the Annoyance Theater, and it was great. It was hilarious, and the then uh, we came home and someone had broken in, so it was pretty funny. <laughs> the, the comedy just continues. Exactly, hilarious. <laughs> well, Jake, I, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but you're you're a pretty big deal in France. Like, what's the deal? Do they just get noir better over there? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's the France thing is funny. I mean, that's something I never could have predicted. But it's been a big deal for the last, um, I'd say, like five years or so. I've gone there like six or seven times now. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, the noir thing runs deeper there just deeply rooted in the culture. I mean, you go into a bookstore over there and about half of the store is, is noir stuff. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is a French word. Exactly. I mean, well, and that's, you know, I mean, and they coined it because they were obsessed with it. You know, this goes back to where we started sort of that. It's about Arkansas, that it's about uh, the sort of religious upbringing that I had. A lot of my books are kind of rooted in that, that world and that stuff. And so the French have sort of seen that as distinctly American. Well, Dry County, the new novel, uh, as you mentioned, Jake, it's it's not the first time you put religion front and center in your books. And it's safe to say that rarely are the religious characters the heroes of the story. Uh, and really, they never are. <laughs> is, is there any part of you that worries about turning off a certain uh, section of the readership by uh, maybe criticizing or, or having these characters, these religious characters be such jerks? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. My father has said to me more than once, when are you going to write something I can show my friends? <laughs> <laughs> my joke always is, but your friends don't read. So it doesn't, Ooh. doesn't matter. Um, Touche. But uh, I hope anyone that, is familiar with the world of, you know, sort of the fundamentalist church in the South would recognize it as being an accurate reflection of it. Yes, the stories tend to revolve around people who are, you know, conflicted or even hypocritical, but hopefully, you know, the, the sort of world that I paint is recognizable to people that that know that world. So it's not, it's not just a caricature or it's not just, it's, and it's certainly not seen as an attack. You know, I think something like dry County, although the, although the main character is, you know, a dark character and a conflicted character, I think that the world of the church that is presented in the book is reflective of what I knew growing up. So yeah, well, and I think, I mean, he's a guy who has succumbed to his human foibles in a way that is outside of, of his religion and his job as, as the preacher. I mean, he's this is a guy who probably would have gotten in trouble by his own hand no matter what. 
Yeah, I think that's probably true. But I also think it's true that, you know, the root of his problem is that he he is one kind of person who wants to be another kind of a person. Like he won't let himself admit that he is one kind of person. He's so invested in being this other kind of person. Isn't that all of us really, Jake? Well, I mean, probably. And it's certainly most noir protagonist, I think. Jake, you teach writing. You obviously write and publish novels and and you've won a bunch of awards in France. Mm. So exactly how many jackets with elbow patches do you own? (laughs) Oh, man, that hits close. Um, I'm going to be honest. There's more than one in there. Yeah. Well, but Jake, please tell me, we, we need to reassure our listeners that none of the um, jackets with elbow patches were lost in the break-in last none night. None of the, no, the, as far as I know, they were all left intact. Oh, as far as you know, you know you went straight to the closet and counted them. Yeah, Come on. There's, there's too many to count, so, you know, I, I did a quick, I did a quick check, you know, we'll do the full inventory later. Well, now, now I'm worried about these awards because uh, you've won, let's see, let's count them off. The French Prix de Mystery de las Critiques uh, and also the Grand Prix de Literature Policier. Yeah. First of all, are, are the awards, I'm assuming it's some sort of sharp glass structure, <laughs> are those safe? And uh, also, do we even know what those mean? Um, the... F- <laughs> The first one is the Mystery Critics Award. It's not even an award. It's it's more like a, a title, you know. They just say, "Hey, oh. you won this," and you go, "Oh, thanks." And then they put that <laughs> on the cover of your books. But I have nothing to hold. I have nothing to show for that. Oh, yeah, that's nothing sad. around the house to steal about that. For the Grand Prix, they gave me a. It looks like a high school diploma, frankly. <laughs> and I got it. I have it framed and on the wall. That was left unscathed in the attack last night i'm gonna say that they, that they broke in they saw that on the wall and then immediately said oh n- uh, guys wrap it up we got to get out <laughs> of here this guy's exactly. this is the real deal yeah that's right. yeah they, uh, as luck would have it it was two french dudes that broke in and they were, they were really impressed has your teaching style changed at all as you've become a published author and started winning awards in France? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I think just writing, you know, practicing the, you know, craft and art of writing obviously will have an impact on, you know, how you explain it to other people. But I also think that the opposite is true. You know, I mean, I teach, you know, freshman composition, having to teach writing especially to people who aren't writers, means that you have to sort of figure out a way to communicate what writing is, what it's for, how to do it in this way that skips over theory, that skips over, you know, a kind of academic approach and sort of goes straight to, you know, this is how you tell a story. This is how you try to convey an idea. So I think it's actually been pretty helpful for me. Well, if you if you could impart one chestnut of wisdom to the uh, freshman class of writer types who are listening right now, who were interested in writing, what would you say to them? The longer I've taught writing and the longer that I've done it myself and the longer that I've seen other people do it, the more I think that writing just sort of boils down to caring about it. The people who care about it will just keep working at it. They'll keep working at it 
outside of someone telling them to work at it. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're invested in the thing being good that is separate and apart from really everything else. You know, you know, you're a writer and it's kind of the thing you care about the most. You will work at it for mm. hours. You will, you will just, you will start doing it and you will look up and it will be, you know, midnight all of a sudden. If you have that kind of passion, then you're starting in the right place. And if you don't have that kind of passion, then maybe it's not for you. Now, this is interesting because you've written a lot of stuff that's uh, that's period pieces. And then you and I have had a lot of discussions, lengthy talks about things like silent movie actors and yeah. film noir and, uh, you know, classic noir literature and things like that. Do you feel like maybe you were kind of born in the wrong era? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when it comes to, certainly when it comes to cinema, I've tried to think about exactly what it is about old movies that I love so much. And I think it's just the kind of basic aesthetic of it. The way that those movies looked, the way they moved, the style of the clothing, the, that's that's my that's my stuff right there. If if you said, oh, you can only have, you know, we have to cleave cinema in half and we have to lose one half of it. We either have to lose every movie, you know, made before 1963 or something. And then after 1963, I'd say, oh, I want to keep the stuff before. I, I'm deeply offended that you would let the Police Academy series <laughs> just go like that. Well, you got Keystone Cops. I mean, you have the, you know, you can keep the original, the OG. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm not saying there wouldn't be there wouldn't be losses. Losing Gutenberg's entire body of work would be painful, but <laughs> that's that's what's known as the Gutenberg paradox. <laughs> Steve, I'm going to go on record as saying that the Gutenberg paradox is the funniest thing you've ever said in your entire life. <laughs> I really wish that I had planned it out, and I think that that goes uh, back to the spontaneity theme I have right now with the Dice Man. <laughs> well, I'm going to live my life now according to the Gutenberg Paradox, and let's see what happens. My first convert. <laughs> Last but not least today, we have five questions with author Matthew Mather. Mather's the author of the brand new novel, The Dreaming Tree, which is a great mix of hard-boiled detective novel with a little bit of sci-fi. There's a bit of medical thriller in there and some deep ethical questions about the future of medical advances. Eric, you were lucky enough to catch up with Matthew for five questions. I was. You were had a recurring bubonic plague. I should have talked to him, though, because it sounds like he knows a thing or two about medicine. <laughs> he does. So, Matthew Mather, here are five questions for you to celebrate the release of your new novel, The Dreaming Tree. So, question number one, you write uh, what you describe as speculative fiction. Now, clarify this for the listeners. I mean, is this just sort of a fancy modern word for science fiction, or do you have a different definition of what speculative means? <laughs> well, science fiction, perhaps brings to mind spaceships and you know and, and laser guns and things and i think yeah. um using word speculative fiction 
uh, brings a slightly different feel to it and and in writing and as in many things in the artistic realm you know the feel uh, of things can change the perception and so I've tended to move towards calling it speculative fiction when I'm talking about things like medical advances and other things um, and, and quite frankly we're all living in a science fiction novel right now I mean we've got you know <laughs> flying cars and billionaires planning uh, Mars bases and uh, you know robot dogs sprinting through forests I mean it's um, <laughs> it's a difficult time to be a science fiction writer because we are surrounded by what years ago was would, would have been purely fictional and now it's 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 all around us so right it is an uh, interesting time to be alive that is a good point well, now with The Dreaming Tree, you do sort of a mix of detective novel and this sort of speculative side of things. When you started this book, did you have an idea of trying to do sort of a straight, hardboiled detective novel, but then your imagination kind of intervened and took over? Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of things that led me to to write this. One was is that I've, in some of my other books and in my other writings, I've been fascinated by the idea of the self um, you know, and what it means to be conscious and what it means to be, you know, a person. In this case, I'd actually read about this, this doctor, uh, Sergio Canavero, who had been planning and still is planning a full human uh, head transplant or body transplant more accurately. And it kind of tweaked my imagination, you know, of, of what that would feel like from the first person point of view of somebody experiencing, uh, you know, a change like that. And so they actually are planning this surgery. It's for somebody that has a neurodegenerative disease. And, and there are people who do organ donation who have, you know, severe head trauma or something and their body is still alive. And um, it, nobody actually notices this, but on your organ donation card, it never specifies which organ, which leaves it open to the possibility of actually donating an entire body if the situation did arise. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then I mixed that in with, you know, a hard-boiled detective novel. I was trying to do a bit of a genre mashup. You know, bodies are piling up and the mystery and, and, and you know, a lot of characters with competing interests and all that kind of thing. And and I have a, a detective that I introduce in the book. Well, it, it works. It's it's a great mix. I mean, you, you definitely, as a crime fiction fan or, or detective fiction fan, there's a lot to, that's familiar enough that you'll like it, but then you get this whole other level. But and so now you mentioned your detective, Delta Devlin, and she has uh, this thing called tetrachromacy. Uh, can you explain what that is for the listeners and what advantages it gives her as a detective? So what it means is most people, you know, have something called three cones in their eyes. And the cones are the things that pick up color, the color sensitivity. So you usually have red, green and blue. Um, but when you have tetrachromacy, people actually have four cones in their eyes. So they have instead of red, green and blue, they have red, green and blue. And then another wavelength that they can see. But a tetrachromat can see about 100 million colors. So they're able to see 99 million colors that a regular human cannot see. And while this sounds like pure science fiction, it's actually a, it's actually a recessive gene that only females have that I think it's about 0.25% of the, of the general population actually has this condition. And obviously people who have this condition have, um, you know, an almost superhuman ability to, to do things with colors and to perceive things that frankly we can't. When I read about this, I thought, wow, isn't this a, a great opportunity? And since so it's actually only females that have this, that can have this recessive gene and have this capability. So I thought this was a great opportunity to, um, <clears throat> to make a detective 
who was able to see things that no, literally see things that nobody else can. Now, do I get any credit for pronouncing it correctly on my first try? You absolutely do. Yeah, tetrachromacy. <laughs> not a word you come across every day. Well, now you have a background in cybersecurity and you're still involved in that world. So let me ask you, at, at what point do you get to know too much about what goes on in the modern technological world to the point that you just never want to leave your house again and go out or go out to a cabin in the woods somewhere? <laughs> I think I think I might have already reached that point. I've, I've, <laughs> I've seen, I'm actually building, literally building a cabin in the woods right now. Um, but I mean, I, I studied this stuff, and I feel like I have probably a better chance of understanding than the average person. And I'm still <laughs> at the point of being overwhelmed every day. I'm looking at the you know the artificial intelligence systems and machine learning, and that it's being embedded into everything. And and I'm looking at um, I have friends that work in venture capital and the, the kind of things that they're investing in in robotics and everything that's coming down the pipeline. It's just, it's pretty amazing. But, but we're right to be afraid on one level. <laughs> I, I've, I've written a lot of apocalyptic uh, novels, cautionary tales, I guess you could call them, which is a lot of what science fiction ends up being about. It's a reflection, you know, back onto humans and cautionary tales. But I think it behooves us these days to write optimistic stories because people are just filled with worry about the future. And I do think it would help uh, as a writer, actually, I feel some responsibility to write optimistic stories about things that go wrong, but then how we're able to correct them and how there's a, you know, like the, you know, I was like Star Trek because it had, um, it was such an optimistic view of the future, you know, where yeah. everybody was kind of supporting. We were all out, you know, the big United Nations thing out exploring the, the galaxy. And obviously there's fights and things that happen in it, but it was ultimately an optimistic view of, of the future. Right. I think that's something that uh, we could all use a little bit of these days. You know, Steve, I like how he just outlined a world for us where technology is advancing out of control. Our entire bodies might be up for grabs and you might get someone else's head attached to it. And also, it turns out I'm not seeing as many colors as I could be. But then, of course, he wraps it up with the fact that he wants to write more hopeful stories. Well, I can't think of anything more hopeful than attaching your head to some other person's body in 2187 and listening to this podcast. <laughs> Steve, if you had a choice, uh, whose body would you choose? Oh, I'd attach my head to your body for sure. Oh, hey, we could swap. <laughs> That's one of the worst ideas you've ever had. <laughs> well, it, we would be trapped in a Gutenberg paradox if we did that, wouldn't we? <laughs> wow, the callback. Strong. <laughs> well, Steve, another good one. We had a lot to think about with this. What did we learn? Wendy Corsi Staub taught us that we are clearly not working hard enough, but it's nothing writing 16 hours a day won't fix. And Jake Hinkson taught us that even when you're big in France, they'll still break into your apartment and steal your fancy jackets with the elbow patches. And Matthew Mather taught us the world is strange and unpredictable, but authors are here to make you feel better about it. Big thanks to our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. For a full list of current and upcoming titles, visit blackstonepublishing.com. As always, you can find us on Twitter at WriterTypes, and we'd love it if you subscribe to our show. We are produced and edited by me and Steve. 
And for more on Steve's books, including the upcoming Go All The Way Power Pop Anthology, available for pre-order now, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. See you next time for our special Boo Halloween episode. Oh, you got me again. <laughs> That actually hurt. <laughs> <laughs>